I guess if you had to make a choice, you would choose either Dunkin' Donuts, French vanilla, or Starbucks. Dunkin' Donuts? Hmm? Starbucks. Okay, all right. Starbucks, we'll put over there. Dunkin' Donuts there. How about this one? This is a big one every year around Super Bowl. Coke or Pepsi? Coke? How many Coke fans? Coke, Pepsi. How many Pepsi fans? Oh, okay. Almost a majority of you are Coke fans. Absolutely. How about this one? This one is pretty big around Blair. You are either a Chevy truck fan or a Ford fan. Which, which, which is it? How many of you are Chevy fans? All right. Ooh, too many of you. How many of you are Ford fans? Not enough of you. Uh, since I'm up here, I'm going to go ahead and do good versus evil. I'm going to put Ford over here and Chevy here. Maybe perhaps one of the most important decisions that you're going to make today is the decision between God's elect animals and the others. <laughs> I'm not even going to give you a choice here. I think the, the choice is pretty clear cut about those that the Lord loves and those that fell from heaven uh, with Satan and his demons. <laughs> Choices. Every one of us is faced with choices every day, and a majority of the time, if we're honest, our choices, we don't put much thought into them. They almost seem inconsequential, if you will. But I want to argue that today, we're going to investigate the power of one choice, the significance of one choice, and that choice is the difference between life and the difference between death. If you're new here today, my name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I'm delighted you guys are here. It's not lost on us that you're here, because we recognize that there are a lot of other places or things you could be doing, still recovering from the tryptophan and the turkey, sleeping in, whatever it is. But we're glad that you're here and have chosen to be a part of our encounter this morning. I want to invite you up front to grab your Bible and turn to the book of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We would just invite you to raise your hand, and one of our ushers is excited to bring you a Bible. These Bibles are yours to have and to keep. We uh, want to get the Word of God into everyone's hands. It's also a great way for you to have a physical Bible in front of you that you can highlight, that you can underline and take notes, make some observations, write down some questions. But as you're turning to the book of Luke, if you're not familiar with where that is, you can find it probably most easily by looking at the table of the contents in the beginning. Let me quickly recap for us where we've been these last four weeks as we top off now this series, The Power of One. You see, in, in today's uh, culture, one seems like a, a fairly insignificant number. When, a, when we look at culture, we think that bigger is better and more means more success. But I would argue that where Jesus is involved, where Jesus is concerned, the power of one has the power to be the greatest number we've ever known. That has the power to change the trajectory of everything for all mankind and for all eternity. Week one, we looked at the power of one moment. We were investigating an encounter where Jesus met with a man who was possessed with demons. And not just demons, but a legion of demons. That number legion is significant in the Roman army. And it represented over 2,000 of the greatest, most elite soldiers. 
We talked about how this man, this man who was possessed by this legion of demons, lived outside of community. He lived in the tombstones and among the graveyards. This man lived a shameful life, a life in, in nakedness, a life where he was cutting his body to relieve himself of, the, of the, the pain and the distorted view that he had of himself and life. They had tried to bind and shackle this man, but he had overcome these shackles with his power and his strength. And so he lived outside of community among the dead. And we talked about culturally and ceremonially why this was so significant, the impact, the power, the importance of this, what this represented, that to be, uh, to touch anything that was dead or to have anything to do with blood would drive you further and further away from community, from community worship, from community celebration. And what Jesus does then as he comes across the Sea of Galilee and he steps out of the boat and onto the shore is he steps not around and not over, but he steps into this man's circumstances. He meets this man where he's at and in one moment, an encounter with Jesus changes the trajectory of his life. The people from the community come and they see that a man who was once considered dead among the living is now alive. A man that had once lived in darkness is now in light. A man who was once outside of his mind is now sober of judgment and sound in mind. An encounter with Jesus radically transforms everything in one moment. We talked about how Jesus got in the boat to go back and this man came to Jesus and he said, Master, let me go with you. And Jesus says, no, I need you to go home. I want you to go to your home and, and demonstrate, declare, show everyone what's happened through this one moment. And we talked about how the power of one moment might be the moment that God uses to, to change somebody else's moment. That your one moment might very well be the moment that God uses to encounter somebody where they're at and change their lives for all of eternity. The second week of this series, we looked at the power of one prayer. We looked at the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We talked about how this prayer fundamentally changed the entire culture as Jesus introduces a relationship that had never been before. You see, the Israelites had always known God or known about God, but outside of a few, could not encounter God one-on-one. -on -one. They would have to go to the Levites and the high priest to intercede on their behalf, and they would have to go through a lot of religious uh, sanct sanctions that would, that would ceremonially make them clean or restore themselves unto, unto God. And how when Jesus came and the disciples said, hey, Jesus, John's disciples, they taught him how to, play, to pray. We want the recipe. Jesus, we want to know what the ingredients are to make a successful prayer. And Jesus fundamentally takes their ideology and he flips it upside down. He shakes it all around and he says, look, you want a recipe and you want ingredients, but I'm going to give you more than that. I'm going to give you a relationship that's going to change everything. We talked about how this one prayer, when you go line by line, thought for thought, idea for idea, will fundamentally change the way you live your life because of a relationship with Jesus. Then last week, we looked at the power of one invitation. We investigated a paralyzed man who had been brought to Jesus by four of his friends. When they got to the crowd, the crowd was so large that they couldn't get in to where Jesus was having church. And instead of giving up, saying, well, hey, we gave it a good college try. Let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings and do our thing. They got creative. They got intentional. 
they got deliberate and they climbed up on the side of a house onto a roof and dug a hole large enough to lower a paralyzed man on a mat. And as he was lowered, Jesus says, hey, look, I'm telling you what, because of the faith of your friends, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus came to address the heart of man, but he also met their physical needs because he looks at those who are scoffing, those who are mocking, those who are questioning. Jesus says, why do you question in your hearts what I just did? Is it easier for me to say, take your mat and go, or your sins are forgiven? But I'll tell you what, to show you that I am the son of man, here's what I'll do. Not only are his sins forgiven, but take your mat and go. And again, this is an example where Jesus says, I want you to go to your home. Go to your community. Because this morning when you left, you left paralyzed. You left without the use of your limbs. You left with a reputation in the community. And you relied on the good nature and the goodwill of those in your community. But now as you go back, I don't want you just to go back. I want you to take your mat and demonstrate for everyone the power of the presence of Jesus and encounter with me. And how one invitation altered this man's life forever. Today, we're going to look at the power of one choice and how one choice can change everything. I want to invite you to grab your Bibles, Luke chapter 19, and let's pray as we jump in this morning. Father, we love you. We celebrate you. We applaud you. You are an awesome God. Thank you for an opportunity to gather collectively in your name. Thank you for your word, your active and inspired living word. May it come alive now in these few moments that we have together. May it jump from the pages and into the inner recesses of our minds and our hearts. And Father, as we encounter you where we're at, would you take us where you want us to go? And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 19 is a story that many, if not most of you who've come up in church are very familiar with. There are child songs and child literature and uh, stories that you've learned about Zacchaeus being a wee little man and all that went along with that. But today we're going to look at this with a new landscape, with new lenses, moving away from flannel graph and cute children's songs to memorize this story. And we're going to take our Sunday school glasses off and we're going to look at the impact, the power of choices and how God can affect our lives when we make a choice. And, and I want to argue right up front that every one of us, none of us is exempt from making this choice. Every one of us will be faced with this choice. And how we respond makes a huge, great big, eternal difference. Jesus in this passage is nearing the end of his life here on earth. He is nearing the end of his ministry. He is on his way to Jerusalem where he will offer one final teaching and he'll do some pretty radical things and he'll turn over a table and drive some people out of the church and he'll, 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 he'll set some things straight and he'll reveal some things to his disciples and it'll change the landscape of their culture and their relationship. But as he's going along and he's coming from the region of Perea, he is going to cross over the Jordan River one final time on his way to Jerusalem, about eight miles from the Jordan River, he's going to pass through the community of Jericho. Now, there are some things about Jericho that are important for us to know as we jump in. Jericho, to this day, is one of the oldest cities that has had the longest amount of inhabitants. It's over 6,000 years old and still has inhabitants today. 
It is nestled in between two mountain ranges. I don't know if you've ever been to Bozeman, Montana. I've been there a couple of times, and it's incredibly beautiful. When you are standing in the center of Bozeman and you look around, you can do a full 360-degree turn, and you are socked in by mountains. And the only way to get through is not to go around but to go through the valley. That is very much like Jericho. From the east to the west, north to the south, it's socked in by mountains. This was a big trade route as it was only eight miles from the Jordan River and it was only 20 miles from Jerusalem. It was a highway of sorts. And so here they had all kinds of influence from the Roman government. It was uh, occupied by the Roman government in this entire region. We're going to get into that here in just a minute. But I just wanted to give you kind of an idea conceptually that this is a busy place. This is a highway with a toll booth. This is a highway with rest stops along the way. There's a a lot of commerce coming and going. There are a lot of people that are local. There are a lot of people that are foreigners in this land. And, and there's one direct trade route that everybody would walk through. So with some context now, let's jump in and look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. And we're going to read 10 verses together. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and he made his way through the town. Again, there's one major trade route, and Jesus is clearly on that road where people would have been passing by and where people would have seen him, and they would have come near him. And verse 2 says that there was a man there, and his name was Zacchaeus. You see, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. There are three things that we need to investigate first. We need to investigate the person of Zacchaeus. That name, it has a Jewish uh, culture to it, a Jewish tradition, a Jewish heritage. So we recognize quickly that he is a Jewish man. And this is, in Palestine, a Jewish culture. But the fact that he's a chief tax collector tells us a couple of things. One, he's a turncoat. He's viewed by his culture and his society as a traitor, as somebody who is, a, is supposed to be a God-fearing Jew, but has chosen position in the Roman government over priority of God and his own people. So he's despised because he's viewed as a traitor. Number two, he is not just a tax collector, but he is a chief tax collector, which means that he had regional responsibilities, that there were uh, people who worked for him that were responsible for collecting taxes. And let me tell you how the taxes worked in this culture. Caesar Augustus wanted to build an empire, and part of his empire, he actually had a, a winter home in this area of Jericho, this region of Jericho. But part of building his empire, part of building his fame and his prestige was to take money from the folks in and around various regions that were consistent with the Roman Empire. So he then had tax collectors that would go out, and they had a set amount that they were responsible for collecting from the people. But then they were encouraged to take above and beyond what was set in place or what was established as the taxable amount. And this was an incentive, if you will. This would, for Zacchaeus, be a way to drive his tax collectors to collect these debts because the more that they collect, the more beneficial it was for Zacchaeus. In other words, he was getting a commission off of each one of these tax collectors and how much they made. So he was incentivizing them to take more than what the government demanded for their own gain and for his personal gain. So when it says Zacchaeus is there, not only is he a Jew, 
and he's viewed as a traitor, but it says that he's a very rich man. He's made his wealth by cheating and stealing. He's made his wealth on the backs of the hardworking people of his own community. He's made his wealth by taking advantage of the least of these. So he's despised in his community. He's not someone that people are readily inviting into community or relationships with him. So something unique happens then. We don't know how Zacchaeus hears about Jesus. Is it because Jesus is passing through that area and they collect a toll from Jesus? Because that's what they did. This was a toll road. Not only did they enforce a tax on the community, but they enforced a, a, a toll tax that as you pass through for commerce and to get through and from, you would have to pay a toll. So maybe he hears about Jesus because of this tax or this toll. Maybe he hears about Jesus because of reputation. Or is it that as he's minding his own business, amongst the community, going to and from, he sees a large crowd gathering around Jesus, which has become very commonplace now. And whenever there's a large crowd gathered, people want to come and see. This is so true of us even today. Just a few weeks ago, my wife and I celebrated our 15th anniversary in New York and in Washington, D.C. and in North Carolina. And one of the, my favorite things about traveling to major uh, metropolis, uh, metropolis areas, uh, major cities, L.A. and uh, Las Vegas and Portland and Seattle and New York. I've been to Chicago. I've been to all the major cities in the U.S. I love street performers. I love street performers. I love their talent. I love uh, their creativity. The greatest street performer that I've ever seen was in San Francisco, just outside of uh, the Golden Gate area. And it was an acrobatic crew that had come in and set up right in the middle of the street and were doing their acrobatic things. And people were beginning to crowd from every angle, from every area, just to see what was amazing to them. Jesus was a healer. Jesus was viewed as, by, by some as a Messiah. He was viewed by some as a prophet. He was viewed by some as a rabbi, a radical teacher. But as Jesus was going along, people were coming in and they were socking in from every angle, from every side to see Jesus. So however Zacchaeus hears about Jesus, whether it's through a toll, through reputation, or through the crowd, it's clear that he wants a glimpse of Jesus. It's clear that he wants to be a part of what they have to offer. But something radical happens. Something that goes unnoticed most of the time. It's the fact that Luke calls out Zacchaeus' stature. And we look at it as saying, well, he's a short guy. He can't see over the crowd. So he's got to get creative and climb a tree. But I want to argue there's something more important before that that we need to recognize. Why did he climb that tree? You see, because of Zacchaeus' reputation in community and how he had taken advantage of people, they were not ready to receive him in community. So I want to ask this question as we start off, and that is this. Are we a crowd or are we a community? In other words, are we known to be a crowd of religious people that gather together with our religious expectations, our religious rules, our religious rights, our religious responsibilities, and, and we tend to be closed-minded, even closed off relationally to others, keeping people from encountering Jesus? This was a real thing. In fact, if you read just a few chapters before 19, Jesus' own disciples got after a group of children for trying to get to Jesus. No, 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 the master's busy. He doesn't have time for you. And Jesus says, guys, you're missing the point. Get out of their way. You let them come to me. And then he holds them up and he says, look, in fact, I'm elevating these guys. And if you want to become like, uh, like, like one of these children, to, to inherit the kingdom of God, you've got to become like one of these children. 
You see, we build, intended or not, these crowds of religion, and our religion tend to drive people away from an encounter with Jesus. Because people have tried religion from generation to generation for hundreds and thousands of years. People have given their best effort at religion, but religion where relationship from Jesus is devoid will fail you every time. And so I'm not interested in being a crowd for the religious. Instead, I want us to be a community that's relational. A community where we look at the outsiders, we look at the outcasts, we look at the broken, the messed up, the jacked up, the spiritually devoid. We look at the people that would not otherwise have an opportunity to encounter Jesus. And I want us to become a community that relationally invites them into an encounter with Jesus. That's why we exist as a church here at Country Bible Church. We are a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. And when we cease to be a community... Or when we cease to be a community where people encounter Jesus, then I think we cease to be a a, a church and become little more than a social gathering. But as long as we keep Jesus the focal point, the center, and we are inviting people into a community where they can relate to us and relate to Jesus, it has the power to change everything. So Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. He wants to have an encounter with Jesus. But because of his reputation, because of his abuse, because of his mistreatment of the people, because of his stature, because of all of that, he can't get to Jesus. And no one is willing to make room for Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus doesn't just give up. I love his tenacity. And I think that it's his tenacity that drives his passion and desire to encounter Jesus, that he does some some things that we have to investigate here culturally. He runs ahead of the crowd and he climbs up a sycamore fig tree. What this means is that Zacchaeus, in order to encounter Jesus, had to be very deliberate. It wasn't an accident. He wasn't kicking some stones saying, well, I tried, I can't get to him, they don't like me, they're not gonna let me see Jesus and so I'm gonna go and he stumbles upon this tree. The Bible says, looking around, He was attentive to his surroundings. He was looking for an opportunity. He was expectant and he ran ahead. He saw a sycamore fig tree and he ran ahead with low-hanging branches and he propped himself up off the ground higher than the crowd from this sycamore fig tree. Two things that we need to identify here. One is that this was considered undignified behavior for an older man of any significance. It was not commonplace for an older man to run. He would literally have to pick up his his shawl or his robe and he would have to run. A lot of times he would scoop it from back and pull it forward almost looking like a sumo wrestler and would have to run so that he didn't lose his undergarments and all that. So you can see, like observations, if we saw that today, can we agree that if we're at Crossroads Mall today and we see an older gentleman pick up his, his trench coat, pull it between his legs and start running, that's just a little weird. But that's not normal behavior. And it wasn't normal behavior for Zacchaeus or that culture. It was, it, was, it was abnormal. It was undignified. The second thing that I don't want us to sweep over, we have to identify, is what kind of tree Zacchaeus climbs up into. It's a sycamore fig tree. And for us, we don't think much of it. I grew up in a neighborhood, even in inner city Portland, that had fig trees. But for anybody of position and authority... There was a caste system that separated the haves from the have-nots. And the have-nots would have used a fig tree for the fruit and for climbing 
And they would have identified that tree as a tree that was synonymous with the have-nots. As a byproduct, anybody in a position of authority that had would not associate with the have-nots. So the irony then of climbing on the backs of the have-nots to get where you need to go, to, to, to look at it, he's climbing, he's undignified, he's touching a tree that culturally was unacceptable for him to touch, that he would have mocked and made fun of, and yet this is the tool by which he uses to encounter Jesus. Zacchaeus runs ahead. He's deliberate. He's intentional. He climbs a sycamore fig tree because of his stature, because the crowd is too big, because he recognized that that was the route that Jesus was traveling. In verse five, we pick it up where it says, when Jesus came by, you see, Zacchaeus was expectant. And I just ask us this morning to consider, are we expectant to encounter Jesus? Or are we just going through the motions? Are we setting ourselves up for an encounter with Jesus? As Christians, do we rely entirely on our first time conversion experience and that being enough? Or are we expectant? Are we setting ourselves up to continue to encounter Jesus? Are we looking for opportunities to run ahead and to set up opportunities to continue to encounter Jesus? It's not a one and done. It's not a one-off. It's a relationship that requires intentional effort. Zacchaeus runs ahead with expectation and intentionality. And when Jesus comes by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest at your home today. And I, I want to I tell you that as I research this, there are some theologians who want to argue a couple of different points. And I don't mean argue as in who's right, but they argue as what was really going on here. Was it the sovereignty of God that, that allowed Jesus to know who Zacchaeus was? Or was it the reputation that preceded him that he knew from the crowd who Zacchaeus was? The reality is it doesn't matter. Whether it's the sovereignty of God or the reputation of man, when Jesus stands at the door, Revelation 3.20, he intentionally invites us in. And we have a choice. Jesus is there and he calls Zacchaeus by name. He must know of Zacchaeus or know about Zacchaeus or must know Zacchaeus. And I love that word picture because it, it helps remember, it helps us remember that God knows us. In prevenient grace, God is at work in our lives before we recognize it for what it is. The Bible says a couple of things. It says that we're created in the image of God. So he identifies some characteristics in us. It says that, that, that he wants all of us to come to know him, that none should perish but all should come to know him, which sets a precedence for purpose. And it says that God knows us intimately, and he cares for us. He cares for the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, the lilies, the grass, the Bible describes an intimate knowledge of us that he knows and counts the number of hair on our head. So this is significant that Jesus is standing in front of Zacchaeus and he says, hey, come down. I've got to come to your house and I've got to build this relationship. I've got to eat with you. We look at that and we think food. But what we need to know culturally is that food was about a relationship. Food always followed the relationship. They would have relationships over food. They would have conversations around food. So it wasn't just that Jesus was hungry. He could have simply pulled a fig off of the tree or he could have called on his disciples to go and get him some food. What Jesus was talking about was a relationship. He said, invite me to the table. I want to come in and I want you to receive this. Look at how Zacchaeus responds compared to how the crowd responds. 
Verse 6 says, quickly, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down, and he took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord, and he said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. Which leads me to my second thought of the day, and that's this. Our attitude in Jesus always leads to an alteration of our actions. Our attitude in Jesus always, not sometimes, not occasionally, not once in a while, not circumstantial, but our attitude, how we see life, how we view perspective, how we, how we see things through Jesus always leads to an alteration of our actions. Zacchaeus responds to Jesus. He immediately comes down, and Luke takes the time to point out two adjectives to describe the kind of response. He said, excitingly, he comes down excitingly and full of joy. But then you have the religious people who do what religious people do. They grumble. And why do people grumble and complain? Do you know that every argument known to mankind centers around the same thing? Unmet expectations. These religious people had expectations of Jesus. They had expectations of themselves. They had expectations of their community. They had expectations of Zacchaeus. And when expectations go unmet, we grumble. Instead of celebrating and rejoicing, hey, awesome, Zacchaeus just encountered Jesus, and Jesus is going to go stay with him, and it's going to change everything, they complain. Do you see Zacchaeus? That guy's a notorious sinner. That guy's a jerk. He's a thief. He's gotten rich off of our sweat equity. He's gotten rich off of our sacrifice. He's a manipulator. He's taking advantage of people. And Jesus, what does he think he's doing? Who does he think he is? Does he even recognize who Zacchaeus is? You see, I think that that might be the primary reason why non-Christians stay away from the church. They expect that that's going to be our response. I met with a man last night in North Omaha, at about 8.30, 9 o'clock last night, I had to go and pick up these amazing t-shirts. Aren't these awesome? I love them. And I got to hear his story. At 27 years old, he left the gang and gave his life over to the community. He doesn't know Jesus yet, but God is fast at work in him called Prevenient Grace, working in him before he even recognizes it. And last night, what an incredible encounter. But he told me last night, he said, man, it's amazing to me how everybody wants to remind me what I used to be like or who I really am, but I'm trying so hard to be like this pastor. And he looked at me and he said, you're not like any pastor I ever thought I could see in Blair, Nebraska. As we had this incredible conversation and it was amazing how I got to talk about how an encounter with Jesus can change your life forever and it can alter our expectations. You can have religious people who grumble because of their unmet expectations, but we don't need to worry about them. Our focus is on Jesus who changes everything. Our focus is on Jesus who changes everything. It alters. Our attitude in Jesus alters our actions. You see, there's never an instance, there's never an instance where someone comes to an encounter with Jesus where they don't have to make a choice. There's not. Throughout scripture, there's not. Many times you see people will encounter Jesus and they'll be discouraged because they're self-centered and they're unwilling to give up their own kingdom that they've created for the kingdom of God. And they walk away and it's altered their actions. But a majority of the time, we see in scripture that when people encounter Jesus, their attitude shifts because their perspective changes 
as they encounter Jesus and it alters their actions. They go about celebrating. They go about worshiping. They go about giving. And look what Zacchaeus does. Listen, to this. this is no small feat. He says in verse eight, as he stood before the Lord, he said, I'm gonna give half my wealth to the poor. Stop. Right up front, whatever his riches are, he's giving half of that to the poor. Not just to the community, but to the least of these. Those that need it most. His attitude is now altered, his actions, and he is intentionally looking for opportunities to build up the community, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to, to give to the least of these, the orphans, the widows, those who have not. He has lived his life building a reputation and building a wealth on the backs of the have-nots, and now in one moment after encountering Jesus, he is pouring into the community of the have-nots. But he doesn't stop there. It says that after giving half my wealth to the poor, Lord, if I have cheated people on their taxes, I want to give them back four times as much. Two things have happened here. Number one, he has just publicly apologized. And that is a very difficult thing to do. To come clean with your junk. To come clean with your brokenness. But in Exodus chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, and you can read on all the way through verse 12, there is a, a process of reconciliation or redemption where if someone steals from you, the Mosaic law requires that you would give back four times or in some cases as much as five times the amount that you stole from that person. So for Zacchaeus to say, hey, if I've cheated anybody, if I've stolen from anybody, I'm gonna give back four times the amount what he has just done as he has publicly declared in front of everybody, I recognize that I am a chief sinner. I recognize that I have messed up. I recognize that I have taken advantage of you and I am publicly apologizing and I am committing to do what is right for reconciliation and restoration. That is almost near impossible for us because we're so consumed with what people might think about us. But I love that Zacchaeus throws caution to the wind, throws reputation to the wind, and he says, whatever it takes, I'm confessing that I've screwed up, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to, to pay this back. And number two, he makes a choice. He makes a choice to sacrifice opulence this side of heaven for the glory of God. Everything he had worked for, everything he had identified with, everything he had built his life around and upon, he forfeit for the glory of God and the betterment of others. Look at what Jesus does, verse nine and 10. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham Jesus doesn't speak to Zacchaeus. He speaks about Zacchaeus to the community. He no longer is questioning Zacchaeus' heart. He's speaking to the heart of those who have unmet expectations. And he does some things here that are, he says, look, this is a true son of Abraham. Not only is he a son of Abraham by birth, the fact that he is from Jewish heritage, descent, but he's a true son of Abraham in that God called Abram and said, you're going to leave your homeland and you're going to go to the land that I've promised you. You're going to sacrifice everything you've ever known, Abram. You're going to take Sarai and you're going to go and you're going to move and you're going to be my vessel and I'm going to make your generations as numerous as the stars in the sky. And that's a commitment that he responds to over and over and over and over again. And now, by identifying Zacchaeus with Abram, he is saying, look, he is a true son of Abraham, not just by his bloodline, but by his choice. He is choosing to forfeit himself for the betterment of the kingdom of God and what I am calling him to. 
And then, talking to the crowd of people now, not talking to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus has already had an alteration. His attitude has altered his actions. He's already given half of his wealth to the poor. He's already committed to giving four times the amount back to anybody he's cheated. Now he says, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. This may very well be the greatest sentence in the entire New Testament. This sentence sums up the gospel in its entirety. Why God, through his son Jesus, incarnate, would come, dwell among man, sacrifice himself, conquer death, ascend into heaven with a guarantee that he's coming back. And upon his arrival, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This verse right here tells us what I want to offer to you today is the big so what. The big so what is this. Where Jesus is involved, one choice is not merely inconsequential. It's not the difference of Pepsi and Coke or Chevy and Ford or Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks or dogs and dogs. Where Jesus is concerned, it is not merely inconsequential. The power of one choice changes everything. The power of one choice changed the trajectory of Zacchaeus' life. The power of one choice changed Zacchaeus' reputation. The power of one choice changed Zacchaeus' responsibilities. The power of one choice changed his response to the community. The power of this one choice changed the financial position of the community. The power of this one choice affected the least of these as Zacchaeus gave half of his wealth away to those who had nothing. The power of this one choice made a way for reconciliation and restoration where there was no way before. The power of this one choice not only affected the trajectory of Zacchaeus for all of eternity, but it says today salvation has come to the house of this man. The generations that have now been affected by this one choice changes everything. His attitude in Jesus alters his actions. And I want to propose to you, I want to suggest to you, I want to implore you to consider the fact that when we come to an encounter with Jesus, it changes everything. You see, the word of God says that Jesus came and he gave us his son because he loved the world so much. And he didn't send his son into the world to condemn us, but to save us. The Bible says that we're far from God because of our sin, but we're alive in Christ the wages of our sin lead to death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The Bible tells us in Revelation 3.20 that Jesus stands intentionally at the door inviting us into himself. He says, I stand at the door and I knock, and if anyone would receive me, would invite me in, if anyone would change their attitude, it will alter their actions and change their eternity. And this has effects. The power of this one choice will affect everything. This didn't just affect Zacchaeus. This affected the community. This affected their finances. This affected his family. This affected everything. When you bow your heart and bend your knee to Jesus as Lord of your life, you confess, I've done it the wrong way. I've sinned. I've, I mean, look, Zacchaeus didn't just confess to Jesus. He confessed to everybody. If I've wronged anybody, if I've stolen from anybody, I'm going to pay you back four times the amount. He publicly confessed his junk. In James, we're called to confess our sins one to another. To look toward reconciliation. Zacchaeus says, Lord, 
here and now I give you my life. I give you my all, all that I am and all that I have is yours. Do with it what you will and it changes everything. And two things happen. Number one, he encounters Christ with the guarantee of eternity. And number two, he celebrates publicly. He gets down with great anticipation, with joy and with excitement. This morning, you have an opportunity and I would even argue an obligation to make a choice. Choose this day whom you'll serve. Will you continue going on about your business or will you fully surrender your life to Jesus? And I say fully. Romans 12, 1 and 2 say don't conform any longer to the ways of the world but continually be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a constant decision. That's not to say that you lose your salvation, you've got to constantly win it back. That's not what it is. But it's a relationship. When my wife and I are not in agreement with one another, I don't think that we're not married anymore. As much as she may not want to be, we're still committed through a covenant relationship. But we've got to work at reconciliation. Maybe you're here this morning and you've given your life to Jesus. But you've walked away from that and you need to reconcile with Jesus. Maybe you've wronged somebody. You need to go, you need to go and reconcile that. You need, to, you, need to, you need to do what it takes to restore that relationship. It may mean restitution through paying something back. I don't, I don't know what that looks like for you, but I know that we have an opportunity and an obligation and that choice changes everything. This morning, you may be here for the, and you're hearing this for the first time. You knew this story growing up and you've been about religion. You've been a part of the crowd of religious people, but you want to be a community that is relational where Jesus is concerned. Today, you may give your life to Jesus for the very first time. You may say, Pastor, look, I don't know how much Pepsi you had before you got up there, but I like it. And I want to give my life to Jesus. I want what you have. And it's not just caffeine. It is the power and the presence of the dynamo pneuma, the power of the Holy Spirit that can change your life forever. As I stand, stood there with this, with this ex-gang member in North Omaha last night at 8 o'clock at night, and he looked at me and he said, what happened to you? And I said, the power of Jesus changed everything for me. And he can for you as well. And I got a text message on the way home about the impact that that one conversation had in this man's life. Never met him before. But I was just honest about my brokenness and how Jesus restored my life. Two things. You have an opportunity to give your life to Jesus. And number two, you have an opportunity to go public with your faith. We have a young lady this morning that's going to go public with her faith in front of everybody. It's a public declaration of an internal commitment. You're going to hear her story in just a minute. If you want to give your life to Jesus today, I want to invite you to come and I'm going to, just, I'm going to sit right here. You just come by me. Come talk to me. I want to pray with you. If you're here this morning and your attitude has never changed. You want to be about Jesus, but your attitude has never altered your actions. And you want to go public with your faith like Zacchaeus, take a stand and say, look, today I'm different. Today it's about Jesus. I'm going to go to, the, to, to, to Brooke's office. I'm going to get you a t-shirt and we're going to throw you in this, in this baptismal. That's a baptismal, not a horse trough. Isn't it awesome? We're, I'm so excited. I'm so, if you want to go public with your faith today, look, there's no time like the present. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for an incredible opportunity to, to hear from your word. Lord, I love you. I praise you. You are worthy of praise. God, I pray that today we would choose you and that that choice, that one choice would alter everything for all eternity. Father, I pray for my friends who are here this morning in the community that we would look to you, that we would look to the sacrifice, that we would look to the life that you've called us to live. And Father, that you would, would speak to us, meet us where we're at and take us where you want us to go. Whatever that looks like, God, where restitution is necessary, I pray that we would humble our hearts and do what is necessary for that restoration. God, I pray for the individual in here this morning that has yet to bow their heart and bend their knee to you. May today 
be the day of reckoning for them. May they fully surrender their lives to you. And for the person who needs to go public with their faith, may they step out in boldness today and go public with their faith, celebrating all the way with great joy and anticipation. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.